Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive & June. Olive & June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive in June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive in June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. The New Statesman. Hello, I'm Katie Stallard, and you're listening to World Review from The New Statesman, a twice weekly international news podcast. Every Monday, we interview a guest for their unique perspective and expertise. Then, later in the week, we come together to unpack some of the most significant stories in world affairs. Today, I'm speaking to Jade McGlynn, an expert on Russian propaganda and memory politics and an academic researcher at King's College London. She is the author of two forthcoming books, Russia's War and Memory Makers, The Politics of the Past in Putin's Russia. Jade, thank you for joining me. It's great to have you on the podcast. Thank you for having me. So I was particularly excited to have you on the podcast because I think we share a possibly slightly unhealthy interest in Russian memory politics and you have sat through even more Kremlin propaganda than me or probably anyone else we know. So I want to get into how Putin and the Kremlin have used history in this conversation, but I want to start out with a framing question and to look at the first of your books, Russia's War, which is out in the UK later this week. We quite often hear the term Putin's war being used to describe the current war against Ukraine. But can you start out by explaining why you've framed this as Russia's war instead? Thank you. Yes, we should possibly think about creating some sort of support group. (laughs) I don't know how well attended it would be. More well attended now. To answer your question in terms of why I decided to call it Russia's war, it's because firstly, this phase of the war began on the 24th of February 2022, but the war itself didn't begin. And also because I think that if we just say that it's Putin's war, we're going to end up making the same sort of mistakes. And because it's so simplistic from the point of view of understanding, Russians aren't the first sort of people or the first country to support a stupid and horrific war. Uh, They won't be the last. And it's important to try to understand how this works and, and what it actually means. And I think at the moment, unfortunately, a lot of the sort of discussions are between 
okay, this is just Putin's war, and actually you know, most Russians are secretly you know, really, really opposed to it. Oh, all Russians are to blame. Let's cancel all Russians. You know, they're innately evil. And quite clearly, <laughs> I'm sad to say that the sort of liberal pro-Western opposition are about as representative of broader public opinion as the real intense Z-heads who, you know, are chomping at the bit to, to go and kill everybody in Ukraine, i.e. neither group is very representative. The vast majority of people are, are somewhere in the middle. And it's I think it's interesting to pick out why that's happened. So the point of the book isn't to say, oh, all Russians are to blame. I'm not interested in blame. I'm not interested in who's to blame. I'm more interested in the sort of who whom if we're gonna, if we're going to use our, our sort of communist or our Russian historical questions. And I want to look at, at why so many Russians or so many large sections of Russian population have been able to acquiesce to the war or have consented to it. What is it about some of the narratives that have stuck, why have they resonated? So it's much more an investigation of that. It's about trying to understand. It's not about judging or about sympathising. And how would you characterise, just to, to start out, the sort of array of public opinion and responses that we're seeing in Russia to this war? My main sort of overarching conceptualization is I use the idea of the spectrum of allies, which is something that's used by a lot of political parties and pressure groups to essentially to get people on side. So the idea is that if you're, let's say, an ecological organisation, don't bother trying to get Shell on board or, you know, with, with your ideas completely divest from fossil fuels. Don't bother with the active opposition. You're never going to convince them. Focus instead on everybody else and trying to shuffle them up. So trying to shuffle up the passive opposition into neutral, the neutral into passive support and the passive support into active supporters. And I use a similar idea, but for the Kremlin, but slightly adapted. And my argument is that the Kremlin doesn't trust either the active opposition, that's not especially novel, but it also doesn't trust the active support. And we've seen people being arrested for protesting for the war as well. And this makes a lot of sense why it wouldn't trust them and it doesn't particularly like them because they're very difficult to control. People who are really for the war on their own kind of terms, it's very difficult to control those people because then they're going to start to have questions about why it's being fought in this way. And we've seen that. We've seen that with some of the sort of turbo ultra patriots. And so my book instead really is more about the sort of free groups. And of course, it's always problematic to group people. And there's lots of movement in between, but just for the sake of understanding the free groups that I say are in the middle. So you have people who are, I suppose, the passive opposition, but in the sense of they're apathetic. There's nothing they can do. They don't like the war, but, but there's nothing they can do. So they're just going to go along with it. Then you have the sort of loyal neutrals. So the people who just say, my country, right or wrong, and uh, quite a lot of people in that section. And then you have the people who are sort of passive supporters, and they support, but only to the extent that they will perform support in a government-approved way. So they're not, as I described earlier, chomping at the bit. They don't really have their own ideas. They support it for different reasons, maybe because they believe the propaganda, maybe just because they have their own sort of theories on Ukraine or on, on what Russia should be, but they don't support it in that sense of they're going to actively go and do anything about it or they're going to get their own ideas or ideas above their political station. How would you explain the mechanics of this? So how the regime targets these particular groups and tries to convert them, as you say, from these spectra of, of positions into more active or at least less negative attitudes towards the war. 
so it works in different ways and, it, and one narrative can work on one person in different ways or on similar people in different ways. So I think the key thing to note is about, I suppose, that those dynamics and to go back to that question of who whom and the idea that everything is just top down or has been top down since throughout Putin's reign is obviously a simplification that's unhelpful without in any way wanting to detract from just the awfulness of the crackdown on domestic opposition and media that has happened since the 24th of February. A lot of these narratives have existed long before, particularly the idea that Ukrainians are Nazis and that the Great Patriotic War or World War II is being falsified, is under attack, and of course as a cornerstone of Russian identity, therefore Russian identity is under attack. These are narratives that have clear resonance among the population. Of course not everybody, you can't ever talk about any country as sort of everybody, but these narratives have resonance when asked to choose in 2020, almost 90% of Russians chose the Great Patriotic War as the thing that makes them feel proud. Out of the available list of different events, nothing else came clear. So this is a narrative that the Kremlin uses very, very successfully. And it's a narrative that's existed for a really long time. And I think sometimes in the West, people look at the sort of propaganda narratives and they think, okay, that's clearly insane. But sometimes it doesn't seem as insane if you put it within a context of nine years of being developed, particularly because it's also sort of embedded within popular culture, within films. And this has been something that's that's been going on since at least 2012 and arguably before, but since 2012 in a sort of intensive way. Now, at the same point, if we stay on some of the more sort of outrageous narratives, we'll put them that way, we also see that to a lot of people, and for example, there's been a lot of research on this in China, which I know, of course, you also have considerable knowledge on, Katie, but there was in particular one sort of academic study that showed that when Chinese state TV would use really over-the-top propaganda, the sort of propaganda you think there's no way anybody could believe this, it's right, nobody does necessarily believe those over-the-top narratives. But what they do is they think, okay, it doesn't increase trust, but it increases fear of protesting. And so people think, oh, wow, if the government is so in control and so confident of their power that they think they can even put this nonsense on television, then really there's no point in protesting because they are truly all-powerful. And so I think the propaganda does work. I don't think it necessarily works always in the same way that we think it works, but it does work. And similarly with fear, of course, sometimes when you look at the numbers, I think it's around 450, give or take, that have actually faced charges or only some of those have been imprisoned for protesting the war. And I know some people have cited that as if to say, oh, that's not very many. I doubt that's very comforting to the people or the families of those who've been affected in any case, but that's not really the point. The point is that these people almost function as symbols of what could happen. And often the stories are really ghastly, you know, of people having their children taken away. There was a lady in Vladivostok and recently there's been a discussion as well of, of, of a man who's had his daughter put into an orphanage or of really horrific forms of rape and torture. And that function is to, of course, symbolize and you have that kind of that real raw fear. But also then you have the corrosive type of fear that makes you, perhaps you're on the fence, perhaps you don't know something. You think, well, I'll just stick with that view because, of course, it's more appealing, the narrative where actually Russia's doing something good and saving people. But also because you have that corrosive sense of fear of realistically, even if you know you have this sort of niggling doubt that isn't the truth about the war. There's not a lot of pull factors to encourage you to embrace the truth, to put it mildly. That's a really great summary. I guess one of the ways I've come to think about 
propaganda and particularly propaganda drawing on these historical narratives is as a mechanism of control, is as a way of dominating the official discourse, having people have to repeat these narratives in public, whether they believe them or not. And that in turn demonstrates the power of the regime, drawing a bit on work by Lisa Wadeen and, and with Ben Gayet. I'm so happy you brought up the parallels with, with China too, because I think it's important to see this as not a sort of uniquely exceptional to Russia issue. But I think your second book, and by the way, it's extraordinary that you've written two books, so congratulations, well done. But this the second book, Memory Makers, really delves more deeply into the role of history in this. And you, you touched there on the importance of the Great Patriotic War, as Russia describes the, the Second World War. Can you just unpack a little bit about how, particularly for people who might not be so familiar with Russia's role in that war and how that war myth has been adapted since Putin came to power. I guess the role that history is playing in Putin and the Kremlin's justification for the current war against Ukraine. Yeah, I mean, actually, firstly, just to very quickly pick up on the point you made there about similarities and parallels of China, definitely. And also that you don't have to, to look to China either. I think there are many parallels of, of what is happening in Russia that you can see around the world, including in the UK or in the USA or in, in other sort of European countries. This political use of history as a form of almost identity construction and of polarizing different groups against one another. It's something that's always existed, but I think just in the same way that ideology replaced religion in its time, the society became more secular. Now, in this post-ideological world, it seems almost as if memory and history are assuming some of those roles. So one of the things that I find so fascinating about studying Russia is often that there's something particularly intense for lots of different historical and cultural reasons about the post-2012 uses of history. But there's nothing pathological <laughs> about Russia apart from the intensity of it. Often you see these these same tactics, these same approaches, these same trends around the world. But then to come to the point of the Great Patriotic War, and of course, again, Russia very much not the only country that's obsessed with politically using World War Two without wanting to sort of <laughs> name any other names. But World War Two as the Great Patriotic War. So essentially, Great Patriotic War begins in 1941, as opposed to obviously 1939. And it's essentially the history of the Soviet-German War, if we can call it that. And it's been pretty central to the understanding of the conflict in Ukraine since 2014. And one of the sort of big case studies in originally my PhD, but now obviously the book, is about how from the very beginning, the Euromaidan mass street protests in 2013-2014 were framed as a sort of return of the so-called Banderovsi. So in Russian parlance, that is just really a term for Nazi collaborators. The history is a bit more complicated than that, but we won't go into it. But yes, yeah, so this idea that Banderovsi, followers of the nationalist leader Stepan Bandera, had come to power again, and that just in the 1940s, Russia, as the heir to the Soviet Union, and Russian people would have to destroy Nazism and Nazi collaborators in Ukraine. And that was a very it was a very popular narrative to an extent where it really actually became a bit out of control and you had a real sort of popular clamoring for a similar situation to happen with Donbass, with Donetsk and Luhansk, the so-called People's Republics, as happened with Crimea, that clearly the Kremlin wasn't ready to do. And so around the middle of May, end of May, you almost had this narrative actually be shut off quite quickly because it was actually a bit too effective. But since then, because it was developed in such detail, just in the six, seven sources that I looked at 
I came across 3,500, a little bit more detailed analogies of what was happening in Ukraine with the Great Patriotic War. And it was just something that then became lodged in the way that people understood what was happening in Ukraine and then what happened afterwards. And one of the things that we see from other research, not specific to Russia only, but in the use of historical analogies, is that they really have a huge effect in terms of framing populations and audiences understanding not even so much interpretive understanding of what's happening, but the policy suggestions and what they think should happen. And then you get to a position where ultimately, if you believe you are fighting Nazis in Ukraine, particularly in the post-Soviet space, who wants to start negotiations with Nazis? How do you negotiate with Nazis? And so immediately you see the acceptability and the possibilities for an acceptability or a coming to terms with what happened in Ukraine was already very difficult just because of this initial framing. You mentioned earlier, this propaganda works, but not necessarily in the way that we might think it does. Can you unpack a little bit more about how it actually does work, I guess, particularly in the context of this war? Yeah, I think to stick with the historical side for one second, I think one of the areas that works quite well and that I think has been maybe underappreciated is the extent to which the Kremlin has been able to conceal a lot of its activities. One of the key arguments is that it's almost that Russians are defending their history. We saw this in the national security strategy. Russians are defending their history from cultural colonization and people who are trying to destroy Russian identity, i.e. the West. And especially those cursed Anglo-Saxons, the Brits and the Americans. So you have this idea that Russians almost have this access, propagated by the Kremlin, that Russians almost have this access to a higher form of historical or cultural consciousness. And therefore, that's why they have the right to help other countries try to get back. And you see this in some of the language around Ukraine, this idea that Ukrainians just don't understand their own history, right? They've been brainwashed by Westerners or by Nazis, and it's for the Russians to to bring them back to the correct understanding. But one of the reasons that this has also been quite popular is because the Kremlin since 2012, but especially since 2015, 2016, and you can look at the sort of budgets, the State Patriotic Programme for Education as well, and see the shift in terms of where the funding went. Money was just poured into making films, setting up grassroots organisations, taking over grassroots organisations in a variety of different ways, whether hostile takeovers or cloning or just spying them off or funding or a nice little bit of coercion, traditional style. All around the country, these different projects like a historical memory project run by the Yedina Rasia political party, the Russian Military Historical Society setting up clubs and military history camps all around the country, as well as the military patriotic camps, which are run by the Ministry of Defense and also often have these historical elements. So you have really just a countrywide national web of so many different activities. But the fascinating thing is that most people think that these are just grassroots um, organizations. So when I did sort of regional field work with different organizations that, that genuinely were grassroots, but then had started to receive money from the presidential administration, and then that started to put constraints on what they should be doing or what they were expected to do. Well, yeah, almost straight away, really. And I think what's been interesting is the Kremlin has been able to find a genuine appetite for just that that any country has for wanting to be able to feel positive about oneself, wanting to belong to a group that is good, that has done good things. And I think that the memory of the Great Patriotic War was one of the easiest and perhaps sad to say few positive things that people could really unite around in the sort of broader post-Soviet Russia. And after the incredible difficulties of the 1990s, And 
the Kremlin was able to then use that, but also to control and harness and appropriate what were originally grassroots movements, often completely apolitical, sometimes even a little bit critical of the Kremlin, and then to use them to its own ends. And still speaking to a lot of people now, they don't realize that some of these organizations that have been taken over have been taken over because of the way it's been done. So I think a lot of that has been very successful, that way of making people think this is something that you created, this is something popular. And you know what? We are just completely on the same page as you rather than you created something popular and then we came in and secretly took it over, <laughs> secretly took it over manipulated it and used it to our own ends. I think that's one way that, that the Kremlin has been so successful with the banalization of history, making history something that's an everyday reference point and central to people's understanding of even their own identities and them, themselves as a nation or group. Wherever you are in the world, if you're interested in global affairs, you can subscribe to The New Statesman in digital, in print, or both from as little as £1 a week. That's 12 weeks for just £12. That's one euro a week in Europe and just $2 a week in America. Just go to www.newstatesman.com slash podcast offer. Hi, I'm Anoush and I host the New Statesman podcast. Twice a week, we get under the skin of Westminster to help understand what's going on and what's going to happen next. We interview politicians, policymakers and people on the front line to get you the full story behind the headlines. Plus hear from our award-winning editorial team, including political editor Andrew Marr, to get to the bottom of what on earth is happening. Listen to the New Statesman podcast. You can subscribe now wherever you get your podcasts. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to health care, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard Fixed Indemnity Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit UH1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. How have you seen that strategy change or adapt over the course of this war? I guess particularly since we've started to see mobilization in Russia, have you noticed any shift in the propaganda strategy or the response of it to take account of the much greater demands that are now potentially being made of the population? 
I think it resonates a lot of this sort of talk. I think it resonates on that general level in terms of how people understand their country and understand sort of Russia's role in the world and Russia's right to do certain things. I don't think that it's a mobilizational narrative in the sense that it will get people to actually actively do much apart from, let's say, honoring their ancestors, which they would have done anyway. And I think that's something perhaps the Kremlin misjudged. I'm not sure. But as we can see... People broadly in Russia, or large groups of people in Russia, appeared to be at least accepting to go along with the war. But when we got to the actual call for mobilization, that's when real problems began because the whole contract, the whole social contract of Putinism with the people has always been that you stay out of politics. In the first, in the early years or the first couple of presidential terms, it was okay. I'll deliver some stability and economic growth and you stay out of politics. And then when that stopped working after 2012, it was, okay, you stay out of politics and I'll give you the sense of belonging to a great power that you can feel proud of. At all points, it was stay out of politics. And so it's quite a lot to then turn around 12 years into this pact, essentially, and say, oh, actually, rather than staying out of politics, would you care to go to die for it in Ukraine? And quite clearly, a lot of people had quite an impact in terms of it was the first time that we saw anything have a major impact on the incredibly problematic polls. But again, that's a different question. But we also saw obviously hundreds of thousands of of young men flee. And since then, I think the Kremlin's been cautious of that and has continued mobilization, but it's done it as mobilization by stealth. And I think that there's a key lesson in there, which again, goes back to reaffirm what I would say is sort of my thesis, which is that there's no real strong enthusiasm for fighting this war in Russia, just in the same way that there's no real opposition to fighting it either. What's going on, it's a different situation. Let me ask you one last, and for me, I find this quite a difficult Question to to think about, so I apologize in advance for throwing this at you, but which is what should the policymakers' response in the West be to this? So you've very clearly and persuasively identified the narratives and the strategies that the Kremlin is using. So what actions can the West take to, to counter those narratives or perhaps to try to get more information into Russia. You know, I know one argument that we've seen periodically since the start of the war is this idea of visa bans and basically forcing Russians to stay inside Russia and thereby somehow overthrow their own government. Given all of your research into this, how do you stand on on those sort of strategies? Do you is there a risk that that's actually quite counterproductive and it makes harder to get alternative sources of information to Russian citizens? This is not an eloquent way of asking what can the West do in response to this. Before I give my answer, I'd like to say that of course none of any sort of criticisms that I'm going to make in any way refer to sort of Ukrainians' positions on this because for them their battle is an existential battle for survival, and I understand that I get to see this from an incredibly privileged position. But if I take this from the position of advising what the West should do based on my research, then I think that the idea of applying visa bans to Russians, I'm not talking about officials who are linked to the Kremlin, obviously, they shouldn't be welcome anywhere anyway. But to to ordinary Russians, it doesn't make any sense to me. Surely, if anything, we should be luring all of the young men aged 18 to 40 out of Russia so that they don't then go to fight against Ukraine, just because Russia has a lot more people than Ukraine. So that would be where I would stand on the visa ban issue. 
In terms of more broadly, I don't think that there's much we can do to influence the information environment. And I think that a lot of what we're seeing is not, and this is, comes back to my point of why I don't agree with the term Putin's war, because I think that Putin is quite reflective in some ways of certain attitudes among the Russian population of a certain type of view of the world. And we see this in world value surveys going back to the 1990s, this idea that Russia has a right to sort of control other countries or that one should support one's own country's interests, even if they harm other countries or they're unjust. There are embedded issues like there aren't any country. There are lots of issues with British understanding of foreign policy and sometimes delusional understanding of our place in the world. So again, it's not to pick on Russia. It's more just to make the point that I think that Putin is as much symptom as cause of some of the issues that we're seeing. And to this extent, I would suggest that the best thing the West can do is just is stay out of it. I don't think we should be trying to push certain narratives of inside Russia. I think we should help. We should support Medusa and Dodged and other organizations that are clearly doing a wonderful job, but that are Russian organizations in the sense of the narratives. Obviously, Medusa is a, is a Latvian organization, but you understand my point. And we should provide them with a sort of safe space and encouragement to do that. And good luck to them, because it's important that this other Russia, this alternative Russia, continues to exist and that it speaks from within its own culture and that it's Russian speaking to Russians. But bluntly, the British trying to promote such a narrative in Russia isn't going to help and nobody's going to listen to it because nobody's particularly that fond of the British over there. Well, not nobody, but very generally, officially. We, we've had, there are places where we have better PR, to put it mildly. So I guess my point is that I think we should not try to interfere because we'll probably just make it worse. I think the best thing we can do in the long run, though this then gets into more military questions, is containment in that sense of we're not going to convince Putin or maybe even the people who come after him not to try to control Ukraine. So we need to just deter to make it too painful once it gets to a certain point and then to focus on our own societies and making our own societies more resilient, making Ukraine more resilient. Well, Ukraine is incredibly resilient. Investing in Ukraine, making Ukraine as safe and as defended as it possibly can be, and leaving Russia to the Russians. Jane McGlynn, thank you so much for joining me today and congratulations again on the books. Thank you. Thank you for having me. This has been World Review from the New Statesman. You can read all our international coverage on our website, newstatesman.com. If you've enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and leave a nice review. The producer has been Mae Robson. The team will be back later in the week. I'm Katie Stallard. Thanks for listening and until next time. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quinn's. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com.